This call is being recorded. Hello, and welcome again to my show, Searching for Integrity. My name really is John Smith, and I'm searching for people with integrity. Why? Because our country suffers from IDD, Integrity Deficit Disorder. I am the author of Embracing the Abyss, where your abyss becomes a portal to your soul. It's a true story of unknowingly becoming part of a fraud scandal, receiving a presidential pardon, and being surprised by a spiritual awakening. Today we continue with the reading of chapters of Embracing the Abyss, the events that occurred over the collapse of the SNL, and the developers, uh, I can't uh, tell you this way. I'm going to have to read it to you because it's in detail. It's good. It's really good. Uh, the only mistake I made, I believe, was I didn't market it well. I didn't market it at all, hardly. Nevertheless, we learned the hard way. At least I do. So I'm going to begin <clears throat> again and continue with the... Uh, the chapters. It was an exciting time at Donny Group. I had begun training a new staff. Rick was finding, interviewing, and making offers to prospective presidents for the various Donny subsidiaries. The presidents already on board were hiring, and Dixon was somewhere courting investor partners for multiple joint ventures being formed to construct and sell 1,000-plus condominiums. <clears throat> I didn't see much of Dixon, but then again, we operated in different worlds. We both seemed to have certain uncertain feelings about each other, and this didn't go away as time went by. He was mostly gone, which was okay with me. As time passed, I learned Rick was an interesting guy, but lonely. One of his pastimes was studying Machiavellian history and tactics, applying this daily to his team of subsidiary presidents. He anticipated all of them to attempt to rock his ship and toss him overboard and out of his presidential chair. <clears throat> I visited with him most days having realized he needed someone to talk to. Because of our similar backgrounds, there was no better person for him to confide in than me. He had sold Bibles in Alabama during his high school summers and taught kids the book of Acts in Sunday school. A Semper Fi Marine who had married his high school sweetheart before going off to Nam? He was a good guy with great determination, nothing halfway, always 100%. He liked to say to me, Beware of controllers bearing gifts. He favored giving people a second chance. And I was one of those people. He gave me a job when I needed it most. I remember sitting across his large desk, observing his bad habit of chain smoking. 
He had a large round ashtray teamed with used cigarette filters. Lining the glass rim one after another. I enjoyed the visits with him as they informed me of our progress, new plans, who could be trusted, and who could not. Being the bean counter in the back, I usually had my head down concentrating on meeting the next deadline. Like most everyone else, I had my good days and my bad. The winds of change seemed to be blowing by me with the world along with it. I was so focused on what I had to do at work that I didn't pay much attention to the news. As a nation, we were still feeling the hangover of the hostage situation in Tehran, and then even worse from a botched rescue attempt. A sense of failure hung in the air, accompanied by doses of anger and helplessness. Welcome to the club. The economy was reeling from a 21.5% prime rate, resulting in a gloomy slowdown for the construction industry. The parallel effect was mortgage rates in the 15% range. But of course, this was something that didn't cause an appropriate reaction from an unconcerned Dundee group. Meeting the challenge and pressure from Dixon and Ramsey, we often heard, we'll sell our way out from Jay Marketing, our guy in charge of sales. I could hear a lot of laughing from down the hall when he was interviewing with Dixon and Ramsey. The story goes that his shoes looked like pink pumps than Italian loafers. He still denied wearing such things, but it, it wasn't an issue. He'd soon be wearing dress boots like the rest of us. <clears throat> a Kenny Rogers lookalike, he often entered the radio-sponsored lookalike contest, but never won. My thought was that his being a little on the chubby side cost him any chance of placing in the top three. He was outgoing, very likable, and had the personality not only for the contest, but for his job, in which he was primarily responsible for the sales staff at the various condominium projects. We now had six or seven locations in the DFW area, which meant he was herding cats all over the Metroplex. There was much calamity in the world. There was much calamity in my own personal world. My first wife and I weren't growing closer as time passed, just the opposite. We had survived joint therapy, so we were at least civil toward each other. It all probably stemmed from my emotional cave in from a bout of heavy depression the year before when I was between jobs. I needed support from her, but never really got much. Although she was well-intentioned, she just didn't know how. She experienced some of the same, having grown up blaming herself for giving her mother polio during pregnancy. Of course, it was impossible for that to happen. Nevertheless, carrying the extra weight of blame for something she didn't do was hard on her. She received little emotional support from her family, which later limited her ability to provide that support to others. 
including me. She tried, but the well was dry. I filed for divorce, which was finalized in March of 1982 after a heated custody battle. I was awarded custody by the judge. It was a Kramer versus Kramer-like event. A layer afternoons, let me back up here. My late afternoons and evenings were filled with sports. My twin sons were athletic. Having played most all of the sports growing up, save soccer, I began coaching their football and baseball teams. I assisted with the basketball team, but I hadn't played much basketball because I was a wrestler, and those two sports were seasonal competitors. I was beginning to experience success with the installation of the software and computers. Both the people I'd hired and the training told me I was on the right track. The monthly reporting and meetings with our partners were all going well, even though the one time the one time the computer blew up and I had to work all night to be ready for the investor meeting the next day. I remember one time when I was the last to take a seat at the conference table, Rick jokingly quipped, dollar waiting on a dime. I soon learned that it was one of Rick's favorite sayings, and while I understood the humor, I could never find it funny. It was a reminder that as the controller, I was the lowest paid executive in the company. Each of the subsidiary presidents was making $75,000 per year and your seriously overworked bean counter was making all of $42,000 per year. I was coming up on my one-year anniversary and did not know what to expect because I was handling the payroll. Rick knew I was aware of what the others were making for their nine-to-five work weeks. My work weeks probably averaged 50 to 55 hours, but I made no mention of it and put my faith in Ricky Wayne believing that he would reward me for my hard work. I was totally dedicated, coming in extra early to be able to leave in the afternoons during football and baseball seasons. Since I coached my boys from the second grade until they went into middle school in Coppell, I was beginning to develop a decent reputation at Dundee, known as hardworking, reliable, a friendly guy. People were beginning to show respect for me. I almost to a point of not considering myself a failure, slowly feeling better about myself and the world about me. Dondi Group, or DGI, created a new holding company, Dondi Financial Corp., or DFC, which acquired savings, Vernon Savings and Loan in Vernon, Texas. Dixon made Woody Lemons from Vernon its president. At that time, Vernon Savings was an $80 million shop, meaning $80 million in footings or totals on its balance sheet. It was in dire straits, losing money to the tune of 10000 a month, which as stated by Woody. He seemed to be well-managed. It seemed to be well-managed. <clears throat> Excuse me. 
but he couldn't continue down a dead-end road because of the imbalance of what the assets were earning versus the cost of deposits to raise money. It was doomed under this old model. Already targeting larger aspirations, Dixon had arranged a meeting with the Texas Commissioner of Savings and Loans in Austin. I was asked by Rick to prepare financial statements for DGI. In preparation of the balance sheet, I wrote off some dormant accounts receivable that totaled about $175,000. It was a basic adjustment to an asset that was incorrectly valued. I didn't seek approval for this write-off because it was the right thing to do. At one point, Dixon and friends boarded a private jet at Addison Airport and settled in for a takeoff. About halfway to Austin, Dixon began reading the financial statements and discovered the write-off and its effect on net income. Witnesses told me that he became enraged. Enraged. In a tirade, he ripped the pages from the binder and tore them one by one. Upon Dixon's return, Rick told me that he had to convince Don not to fire me, but to put me in corporate exile instead for me to be repositioned. My job was definitely in jeopardy, my career uncertain. According to Dixon, I was considered the organization's untrusted, yet they didn't fire me. Rick Ramsey, like me, was a straight arrow. He protected me, referring to it as keeping me out of the box. He was attempting to keep the boat on the straight and narrow and knew that I would be needed to assist. This was one of my early encounters with the abyss, a place accessible through your heart where deep self-examination is known as soul-searching. Had I done the wrong thing, had I done the right thing, I didn't want forgiveness for doing the right thing. I decided that I would last longer, both mentally and physically, if I stayed out of sight and out of the way. Hello, exile. Chapter number five, The Compliance Guy. <clears throat> During the 1983-84, as things were slowly shifting in Dallas from Dondi Group over to Vernon, I stayed busy with compliance at Vernon Savings, was under a supervisory agreement imposed by the Federal Home Loan Banking Board, FHLBB, Having these tasks and others, I gradually became an admin guy on the Vernon Savings side of things. I no longer was responsible for Dondi Group accounting. Rick Ramsey hired someone to become the CFO and run the Dondi Group accounting department. Of course, I was still in exile, and Rick continued saving me from Dixon for a better purpose. I was not to be noticed by Dixon. Rick was effectively hiding me. I appreciated that Rick did for me what he did for me, and we apparently went further back than I realized. <clears throat> In 1963, when I was around 14 years old, I was in Waxahachie, Texas, delivering a letter to my Aunt Claudie, who managed the local Dairy Queen. 
While standing outside the order window, I could see through to the back where a teenage guy was working at an astonishing speed. He was back and forth and back and forth, flipping burgers and tending fries and preparing all the other stuff people ordered. It was a hot day, and he was a hot and sweaty, but this guy never faltered, didn't miss a step. I was impressed. My aunt finally came to the window, and I left thinking I was glad I wasn't that guy in the back. In early 1983, I was talking with Rick's wife, who mentioned that he had worked at the Dairy Queen in Waxahachie. I responded with the fact that my Aunt Claudie used to run the place. She replied, yes, that would have been Mrs. McCoy, a real mule driver. She was one tough person to work for. Not long after that conversation, I put two and two together to realize that the guy in the back on that hot day was Ricky Wade, my boss at Donnie Group. What a small world we will live in. <laughs> oh, boy. <clears throat> Vernon Savings had its own accounting department with its own chief financial officer. It dealt with day-to-day transactions as they occurred. Business as usual, Vernon Savings did not perform any sort of due diligence that I'm aware of or on whether or not the transactions were good sales or good deals or good loans or bad loans. They would receive the closing statements and documentation to record what came their way and voila, profits resulted. Still a CPA, I was the officer of Dondi Financial and Vernon Savings. Responsible for working with the partner in charge of the audit from Arthur Young, a nationally recognized accounting firm. I discussed reporting theory on various matters, whether recognizable in terms of revenue recognition, income, and profits. I did not do any of the nuts and bolts accounting. I did not have any daily accounting responsibilities. Once I was placed in exile, it was the end of the day today accounting for me. I did not do any type of review on any loan. If I had asked to review a loan and I didn't have any risk reason to ask, I most certainly would not have been allowed to do so by Dixon or Woody. They kept a pretty tight rein on their deals because of the, what they were doing with them. What they appeared to be doing turned out to be completely different from what they were actually doing. I spent a good deal of time working on loan manual and guidelines for the loan guys in Dallas. Of course, they never paid any attention to those materials, only to what Dixon told them to do. I recall an almost all-day seminar in Beaver Creek, Colorado. I was the onstage presenter listening to the new rules. Dixon would groan, and afterward he would Accuse, often accused me of pissing on their campfire. What I didn't know then, but would find out later, was that acquisition, development, and construction ADC loans were frequently fraudulent. They were often fictitious, put together by Dixon and Woody, with certain selected borrowers, 
steel guys, they called them. This may sound simple, but it was created and executed by a couple of masterminds. Funds from these loans deals were used by Dixon for various things like beach houses, airplanes, and art, to name just a few. I remember a fake dollar bill created by the Dondi Group marketing staff that had Dixon's, Dixon's picture on it with the words, In Don We Trust. In the spring of 1983, a new plan was hatched by Dixon to take the Dondi Group projects and inject them into Dondi Financial, the holding company, via a reverse merger. Vernon Savings and Dondi Financial applied for and received approval from the Texas Savings and Loan Commissioner for the reverse merger. Briefly, a reverse merger is basically the acquisition of a company, Dondi Group, by another company, Vernon Savings and Loan, so that acquiring company gets the benefit of the acquired company's assets and the reorganization of capital. This became somewhat of a common practice for SNLs because it was a method of increasing needed capital, which had dwindled during the last few years. Speculators and real estate developers were encouraged to buy savings and loans. They had grand plans of infusions and other methods to increase the capital base. But in this process, the regulators didn't realize they were taking on a boatload of bad assets that on paper looked good. Dixon ordered a massive effort for the reverse merger to occur post-haste. Just prior to the capital injunction, you know, injection merger, there was supposed a, super, a supposed buyer, nope, starting all over, ju just prior to the capital injection merger, there was a supposed buyer for Dondi Group out of Oklahoma. He was a chubby guy who at a moment's notice could make his eyes well up with tears like he was crying. This ploy went was to generate whatever sympathy he needed during any negotiations. Dixon had asked Rick Ramsey, who was still president of DGI, for DGI's consolidated financial statements so the proposed buyer could have a better understanding of the purchase price. While Dixon was meeting with the teary-eyed prospective buyer, a birthday party was in progress downstairs for Rick. I was the chosen one to go upstairs to find Rick, nope, to find Dixon so he could join the party for Rick. I poked my head into his office and said, come on down, there's a birthday party underway for Ramsey. What I didn't know then was that only a few minutes earlier, Dixon had looked at the financial statements with the prospective buyer and proceeded to throw a fit, a tumultuous tirade of yelling at Ramsey in Ramsey's office. You're nothing but a bookkeeper. You don't know what you're doing. You're not cut out for a high position. 
Dixon threw the financial statements against the wall again, yelling at Ramsey so loud that people in the office next door heard it. What prompted Dixon's explosion was that Ramsey had previously instructed the CFO of DGI to prepare all financial statements according to proper protocols in accordance with generally accepted accounting principles. Rick had authorized the write-offs of a number of items that were dead assets, which had no value. Neither Rick nor Don attended the birthday party. That was the day when Ramsey's departure was set on his birthday. Rick would learn that his successor would not come from the inside group, that he had practiced his Machiavellian tactics on. Instead, someone from the outside toting a bag of better assets opportunities was coming. Shortly after missing his own birthday party, Ramsey was bought out as president, selling his DFC stock at over a million dollars. He became the only person to ever sell their stock for real money. No one else was able to do that. Or the event occurred that they could do it. This was uh, an interesting time. Um, And I I missed Rick Ramsey a lot. Uh, We we stayed in touch uh, somewhat. Um, And uh, later on in the book, there's another chapter about Rick. Um, I've enjoyed doing this. I, it's, it's amazing to me. Uh, again, and I'm working on a new plan. I'm working on a new plan. I'm going to make some little books, not embracing the abyss, but embracing your abyss for people's worries, for people's troubles. And each of these little books would have embracing your abyss for addiction, for divorce, for um, you name it, and for instance, disabilities. Um, I've got a title for the little book on the disability, and that is that uh, what is PTSD and why am I crying? And the chapter fits. I can also write one on anger, I believe. The times in my life that I had to cull it, cool it, and stuff it. Uh, nevertheless, um, it will uh, it will do better, a lot better. And there'll be small books that you can carry in your pocket, hip pocket, in your purse, in your shirt pocket. If you can find a shirt that's got a pocket on it still. Um, thanks very much again for listening, listeners, and searching for integrity. Loves you. And so long and happy trails to all.